Thank you, Stan and worship team, for preparing our hearts so appropriately for the text that we'll be looking at this morning. You'll turn with me in your Bibles to the book of First Peter. That's where we'll find ourselves. Book of First Peter, chapter 1. The Word of God reads, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Let's pray. Our Father, God, we are grateful to you for your kindness to us and for how you care for us, how you care for us in our suffering, and how you yourself give us every reason to be thankful. Lord, we pray that you would be with those who are not doing well this morning, who are struggling to give thanks. We pray that, Lord, you might speak to them through your word, and that you might encourage them with your love and with your care for them. Father, we pray that you would bless and honor the preaching of your word. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, happy early Thanksgiving to all of you. Uh, I know for some of you, you're very excited for this week because at least for the SF uh, USD kids, you guys have the entire week off. So congratulations. Don't waste your time. Um, and for others of you, this is an exciting time just because this is a time for you to be able to spend time with family. You're excited, you're, you're glad to see some of your relatives that you might not have been able to see in a while. Um, and, you know, there's always the extra benefit of having food. That's always a nice thing. And uh, for those of you who are shoppers, well, then you have Black Friday. Or if you're like me, you sit at home and you look at Amazon and see what goes on sale. Um, and, uh, well, I guess if you have time, then, uh, you can look and see if you can get some gifts for your relatives and your friends, you know, if you have time. Uh, for others of you, though, uh, Thanksgiving is not something you're grateful for. It's not something that you're necessarily thankful for because it is a time of stress for you. You're thinking about the groceries that you have to go buy, all the dishes that you have to go prepare. When's the best day to go to Costco to get all the things that you need? By the way, it's not Wednesday. It's a terrible day. Don't go on Wednesday. And, you know, not only that, but there's stress too, right? Because Thanksgiving is just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the holiday season, right? Thanksgiving comes, but then you have to think about all the different office Christmas parties that you might have. And you think about all of the gifts that you have to get, whether it's for your family, whether it's your friends, right? It's a, it's a, it can be a very stressful time because you're just thinking constantly about what you have to do ahead of time. And as a result, Thanksgiving, even though it has its roots in being thankful, it's not something that you're always grateful for because all you see is stress, more stress, and more stress. Now, there are some of you here this morning where you don't feel like being thankful for other reasons. Life is not always easy. And there are times where it definitely feels like you're in the eye of the storm. And it can be difficult 
therefore, to enter into the holiday season with thanksgiving in our hearts because it feels like we've been dealt a bitter pill. And yet, despite the pain, despite the hurt, despite the disappointment, there still is hope. There still is a reason to give thanks. Brothers and sisters who are here this morning, you are hurting. I don't preach this to you expecting for you to hear this message and to walk out feeling better. I don't expect for you to leave here without your hurt. There's a reason why it hurts. And I'm not trying to make light of your pain or your suffering. I'm not going to pretend like I understand your situation because more likely than not, I don't. But I do want to point you to hope. I do want to point you to the God who loves you, who cares for you, who will be there for you in the hurt and will be the one who will bring the healing as well. There are those of you here this morning, you're not hurting. And it might be tempting for you just to switch it off and say, well, it's not for me, so I'm not going to listen. But it's equally important for you to listen as well. On the one hand, it can help you understand and sympathize with those who are hurting amongst us. It can help you think about how you can practically care for them. On the other hand, this message is for you because it teaches you how you are to respond to suffering, how you are to prepare yourself for the times of trial, and when they do come, how you can respond in trust and in faith even when you don't want to, even when you feel like you can't. Significant trials and pain, they will certainly come into our lives. But what we will find in our text this morning are three reasons we can be thankful. Three reasons why we can be thankful in the times of the storm. And, that, and the first reason why we can be thankful in the times of the storm is the anchor of our thanksgiving, the anchor of our thanksgiving. The book of 1 Peter is written by none other than the Apostle Peter himself. Now, typically, when we look at a greeting in in an epistle, we just blow right by it because we're just like, well, it's a greeting. There's not much here for us to look at, so why would I spend a lot of time here? But there is a lot of significance here. Remember who Peter is. Peter is an apostle. And that means that as an apostle and as someone who is writing this letter to the saints, he is communicating the very words of God. And so what we have this morning before us is not the opinion of a mere man, but we have the instruction, the counsel of an apostle who is giving comfort to people from God. The recipients of this letter are identified as those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Peter, he wrote this letter around 64, 65 AD. And that's that's a significant time because during this time was the beginning of the persecution of Christians in the Roman Empire by Emperor Nero. And the reason why he decided to persecute them was, frankly, quite selfish. Nero wanted to clear out some more space in the city of Rome for his palace. And so thinking that he could just set fire to a large portion of the city and get away with it, he did so. And then he was shocked when he found out that the citizens of the city were upset and as they were upset, he was trying to figure out, okay, well, who do I blame? Because if I take the blame for this, if I take responsibility for this, no one's going to be happy with me. And so he chose to make the Christians his scapegoat. And as a result, the beginning of official persecution of Christians, at least within the city of Rome, began. And those who were Christians in the city of Rome, they had to flee. They had to leave And even in the far reaches of the empire, even though they were not necessarily in Rome, the persecution of Christians began to spread because, hey, if the emperor is going to be behind this and he's not, he's going to back me on this, why not? And so many Christians 
fled their homes, and they lost much. It potentially cost them their family status. It potentially cost them the lives of their family members, their social standing, and much more. And these believers, though they might have lived in the Roman Empire, they were treated as second-class citizens because of their faith. And so for this reason, Peter refers to them. He calls them aliens to remind them that though they live here on earth, now their citizenship is in heaven, not on earth. And so Peter, he writes this letter to these embattled believers, some of them undoubtedly displaced because of persecution. And they were all in this area of what we now know as modern-day Turkey. And he writes to them in order to encourage them during this time of suffering and to exhort them to continue to live lives that are worthy of the gospel. When you study the book of 1 Peter, you'll see that the prevailing theme is suffering. But again and again, you see Peter call them to this idea of thinking right, worshiping God, thanking God, and acting right, even though they suffer. Now, for some of you, when you look at verse 1, you see that uh, there's a word there for scattered if you're in the NAS. Uh, and if you're not in the NASB, some of you will probably see uh, a phrase such as the dispersion or dispersed. And the use of the Greek word for dispersed is significant because it is used elsewhere in the New Testament to speak of the dispersing of Jews throughout the world by the Assyrian and Babylonian captivities. Jewish Christians then would, have an, would be especially sensitive to this language of dispersion. But why does Peter bring it up? Well, he uses this verb very specifically in order to draw both, the, to draw both Jewish and Gentile converts' attention to what comes next. God Though he allowed for his people to be dispersed throughout the world, he still is their God. He still cared for them. He still would honor the covenant. And at the same time, you saints who are dispersed, God views you in the same way. You are also his covenant people. Though you be dispersed, you are also cared for by God. Though you be dispersed. And so just like the nation of Israel was chosen specifically by God to be his people, so has God chosen for the church to be a part of his chosen people. Think about that. That is so encouraging, right? People may hate you. They may discriminate against you. They may act with extreme prejudice against you. But God, the Father, has sovereignly chosen you to be a part of his chosen people from eternity past. It says that he chose us according to his foreknowledge. Right? God didn't choose to save you or make you a part of his covenant people or the object of his grace because you deserved it. Right? Sometimes when you tell people that God loves you, they're just like, oh yeah, of course, why wouldn't he love me? You know, look at me. But that's not the case. Okay, God chose you in spite of you. God chose you even though you wanted nothing to do with him. It's not like he looked down the timeline, not like he looked down all of human history and said, well, I know this person's eventually going to believe in me, that person's going to believe in me, so uh, to make it seem like I did everything, oh yeah, I choose you too. Definitely not. God chose people to come to him despite who they are. Ephesians 2, 1 to 3 reminds us that we were dead in our trespasses and our sins. We were designated as children of wrath. We loved our sin. We wanted nothing to do with God. Yet God, according to his great mercy, chose to save us because he chose to set his love on us. That's the only reason why. Not because we merited any favor whatsoever, but he chose to set his love on us. You know, returning to 1 Peter, we see that God chose us, or if you want to use the theological term for it, God elected us to salvation by his own sovereign choice to be a part of his people. Now, how did he do this? Well, it says he did this by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. 
Usually when you and I hear the word sanctify, we think about the process by which those who are saved become more and more like Christ. As we grow godly, that's what we normally think about when we think about the word sanctify. And you are absolutely correct. But in this case, Peter uses it to talk about salvation in general. But why? That has to be the question that nags you in the back of your mind. Why? Why would God choose to save us? Well, he says here, so that we may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. That's a difficult phrase to interpret and to think about. The grammar is also very difficult here. A lot of scholars, they debate whether these two things should be understood together or whether they should be understood separately. I lean more towards the fact that they should be understood together because every single commentator agrees that what Peter is doing here is he's alluding to Exodus 24. He's alluding to Exodus 24, where the people of Israel told both Moses and God that they would commit to living their lives in obedience. So in Exodus 24, Moses, he has the law before him, and he's reading it to the people. And upon hearing the law read, the people respond, and they say, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. Now, you know the history of Israel. You know how ironic that statement is, because that is certainly not true of their attitude. Yet, that's what they meant at the time. They wanted to commit their lives to the Lord. They wanted to be obedient to him. And so upon hearing this, Moses, in order to set the people apart, to sanctify them, he sprinkles the blood of the sacrifice, of the offering, of, of the offering on the people to sanctify them, to set them apart. And so what Peter is pointing at here in 1 Peter is that when we are sanctified by the Spirit to obey Christ and to be sprinkled with his blood, we, in faith become or enter into covenant relationship with God. Now, this is not the old covenant, but this is the new covenant where God regenerates our hearts and gives us a new spirit so that we can obey God, so that we can love him as we ought to. And so Peter, he does this. He shows this to, sh- to demonstrate the fact that when you become a Christian— When you become a Christian, you're not just becoming a Christian so that you can receive all the benefits of a relationship with Christ without actually having to follow him. That's not the kind of relationship that we have with Christ. When we enter into relationship with Jesus Christ, it means that we have some obligations to him as well that we also must obey, that we also must follow after him, that we also must love him. we might not necessarily face the same type of trial that the people Peter is writing to face. But we can learn from them. We can learn from their example. We can take encouragement, as those believers did, that the very same God who loved and, who loved and chose Israel to be his covenant people is the same God who loved us and chose us to have a relationship with him. Now, admittedly, that might not necessarily seem comforting. But that is such an amazing thought. Though others may reject us or treat us harshly because of our faith, God himself initiated and completed all the action in order to bring you and me into covenant relationship with him. Look at this too. When you look at verse 2, who is there? Who is present? You see all three members of the Trinity present. You see God the Father. You see God the Son. You see God the Holy Spirit. All three members of the Trinity are active in choosing to save us from sin and God's wrath against sin. Not only that, all three are active in establishing covenant relationship with him. This is intensely personal for God. He's not high up looking down and saying, oh, I guess you can come. No, he comes down and he grabs us where we're at and he brings us into relationship with him. And for this reason, Peter, he extends a familiar prayer greeting to his readers, one that we've heard from Paul many times. He says, may grace and peace be with you. But he even 
he elaborates where Paul does not. He says, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Where your brothers and sisters may fail to understand or come alongside you in your pain, remember that God, who is strong enough to save, is the one who grants you life. He's the one who grants you his grace and his peace. And Peter prays that you may experience this and that you may experience it in its fullest measure. The world may hate you. You might have to suffer. But sons of the king, daughters of the king, you are not alone. You are not abandoned. Your God who paid a great price to save you and adopt you is with you and will be with you forever because he is faithful to his covenant relationship. He is faithful to his promise. And this brothers and sisters, is your anchor point in the storm. This is why, though it may hurt, though it may not make sense, you can turn to the God who loves you and cares for you. He is the one who anchors all of our hope in everything. And that leads us to a second reason why we can be thankful. A second reason why we can be thankful, and that is the fuel for thanksgiving the fuel for thanksgiving. As Peter remembers all that God has done in order to save believers to himself, which in itself should cause us to be thankful, Peter, he bursts out in praise. He bursts out in worship as he writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul Peter, he bursts out in worship to God, thus reminding his readers and us by extension that the reason we can have salvation in the first place is because God, the Father, sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sins. Did God have to do that? Did he have to send Jesus to die on the cross for our sins? No, he didn't. And he would have been absolutely righteous and just even if he didn't. But he chose to save us. He chose to save us. And for this reason, Peter explains that the reason why we worship God is because he has shown us great mercy. Now, while God's grace is certainly important in our understanding of our salvation, Peter, he's emphasizing at this moment God's mercy. And that's not to say that God's grace is unimportant. God's grace is absolutely important. That's how you're saved. But Peter's goal here is to draw our attention to God's mercy. God's grace and his mercy, they're similar, but they are different in the sense that mercy's concern is an individual's miserable condition. Okay, Mercy's concern is an individual's miserable condition. Grace, on the other hand, is concerned with an individual's guilt. Grace is concerned with an individual's guilt. Now, God, he knows that we cannot save ourselves. He knows that there are not enough good deeds that we can do in order to merit salvation. He knows that there are not enough tears that we can shed in order to express our repentance enough. He knows that we are absolutely helpless to save ourselves. So what does he do? In his compassion, he extends to us his great mercy And he does that by offering us grace, his unmerited favor that takes away our guilt, that transfers it to Jesus Christ and takes his righteousness and transfers it to us so that when we stand before the king in the courtroom, he looks at us. What's his verdict? Not guilty, but even better than that, completely innocent, right? Not guilty could mean that you're still guilty but we're completely innocent because of the righteousness of Christ. That's what God extends to us in his great mercy. That's what he does for us in his great mercy. And as a result of this great mercy, God himself, now get this, God himself has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Again, I draw your attention to the fact that God himself does this. And it says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to, caused us to be born again to a living hope 
just like babies being born. We cannot take any credit for our being born again. Right? Babies don't come out of the womb saying, look at me, look what I've done. Aren't I glorious for my birth? No, right? That's ridiculous. Mom gets all the glory for that, right? And in the same way, God gets all the glory for us being born again. He gets all the credit for it. Now, this word born again, it has the idea of new life. And with this idea, with this definition, comes two results. What do we get from being born again? We get hope and we get an inheritance. All believers have as a result of Christ's substitutionary death on the cross for sinners and his resurrection a living hope. Now, why does Peter call it a living hope? Well, it's a living hope because of who our hope is in. The hope that we have as Christians is a hope in a resurrected Savior because our Savior lives and he lives forevermore, our hope will also live and continue to live forevermore. The focus and the anchor point of our hope is Christ himself. And that fuels our worship and our thankfulness because what can we say? We've been shown such a great mercy, such a great love, Because of that, we can be thankful. We always have to be thankful for that. The saints in Asia Minor, they may have been persecuted rather harshly. And though they may have experienced great discouragement and trouble, they can look forward to the hope that awaits them in the persons of Jesus Christ because he lives. Now, we may not experience the exact same trials that they did. We might not experience the same persecution that they did, but we can certainly learn from their experience as we are reminded of the fact that we too have a living hope in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so when we experience trials, we have that same hope. Now, this does not mean that your pain is not real. This does not mean that your suffering is not legitimate and should therefore go away because you just need to think right. Now, granted, we still need to fight to think right. We still need to fight in order to have God-honoring thoughts when we suffer. And that's hard. It is really hard. But when it's hard, when all that you want to do is to ball up and cry, when it seems hopeless, Remember that there is hope, and it is found in Christ. You may be fighting, clawing, trying to lay hold of that hope, as it seems like it's slipping away from you. But dear brother, dear sister, it won't. It won't. You have a living hope. A living hope that is rooted and anchored in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So do not lose heart. Do not lose heart. But fill your mind with scripture and surround yourself with church family who will remind you of these truths. These people, these scriptures, they will be the reason, they will be part of the reason why you will be encouraged to sing and praise and in thanks even when it hurts because they're reminding you, they're always pointing you forward to the hope that lies before you in Jesus Christ. Not only do we have this living hope that we can look forward to, but we have an inheritance that we receive from God as well. The inheritance that we receive and are entitled to is different from earthly inheritances. Look at how Peter describes our inheritance. He calls it imperishable. It is imperishable. Now, some of your translations may translate this as incorruptible. And it implies that unlike the things on this earth, which may rot or decay, That is not the case with our heavenly inheritance. It is permanent. It cannot be destroyed. Another description is that it is undefiled. This implies that our inheritance is unstained, unpolluted. It is morally and righteously pure. It is not in any way, shape, or form tainted by sin. 
it will also not fade away. The Greek word used here is unique to Peter, only appearing in, uh, later in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4. And it was used in secular Greek to describe a flower that withers and dies. However, or sorry, to describe a flower that did not wither or die. Unlike perishable flowers, which are here today and gone tomorrow, the inheritance that we receive from God will not fade away. It will not lose its luster. Not only that, if that wasn't enough, if not only that, it is reserved in heaven for you. It is reserved in heaven for you. This, this, this final description of our inheritance, it's almost, it almost puts our assurance way over the top. And not only does God make clear that our inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, but it is reserved in heaven for you. That means... That in addition to all those things, our inheritance is guarded, watched over, protected by God himself in heaven. All who trust in Christ will have their inheritance safely and carefully guarded in heaven. Unlike the physical, earthly inheritance that Peter's readers likely forfeited as a result of fleeing their homes or because of their faith, just being disinherited by their families. The inheritance that God has for them and for us, it is so much better because it will not go away. It will not go away. You and I probably won't lose our earthly inheritance if we're entitled to such because of our faith in our society today. We probably won't face that. But we can have the exact same confidence that these believers had. Nobody can take away the inheritance that God has for us. Verse 5, this is pretty cool. This is a description of us who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You know that this inheritance is for you. But Peter, he brings an extra layer of comfort here. This new birth, this living hope, this inheritance, it's all for you who are protected by the power of God through faith. Yes, trials will come. Suffering will occur. But no matter what happens, no matter what happens, we have confidence and comfort knowing that the power of God protects us. Now, this does not mean that we continue in this life without fear of physical danger to our lives, because there are times where God allows for us to suffer, to receive affliction in our physical bodies. We've both experienced this and seen this happen to some of our church, our very own church members this, over this past year. And so to tell them that they won't have to fear physical affliction is cruel and inaccurate. So Peter cannot mean that no physical danger or harm will befall us. Nor can he mean that believers won't experience persecution because the very people that he writes to are suffering because of persecution. So what does he mean when he says that you're protected? While God's power does not shield believers from trials and suffering, it does protect us from the tests that would tempt us to fall away or give up. Right? Think back to the disciples' prayer in Matthew 6. What does Jesus teach his disciples to pray in regards to temptation? Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The Greek word for temptation, parismos, is the kind of testing that seeks for you to fail. And this is the kind of test that God's power protects you from, that it guards you from. This does not mean necessarily, though, that you won't doubt. There may be times where you will doubt God's goodness. But though you may doubt, you will not falter forever. He will protect you. You will not fall away. God, he uses the very faith that he gives us to protect us to insulate our minds so that when we are tempted to cry out in anger or grief and say, God, what are you doing? We will find our peace and our comfort in him, even if we fail for a moment. 
God, he protects and preserves us for a salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. And this is the product of God's protection. God supports you in times of trouble because he is leading you to the fullness of your inheritance. Peter, he rounds out the details of our inheritance here at the end of verse 5 to help us see that so much more awaits us in heaven. Our inheritance, though realized in part now, is not complete. There's so much more that God has prepared. It's ready and it's waiting for us. We won't receive all of that until we enter into eternity to be with him. But we press on. We can have hope. We can give thanks because we know that nothing will affect the good that God has in store for us. Nothing can take it away. It's still there. It's ready and waiting for us. Yeah, and we may not necessarily be in a place like Peter's readers where we stand to lose a physical inheritance as a result of our faith, nor do we necessarily experience the same kind of suffering and persecution that they faced. However, as we learn from what God wanted Peter to communicate to these suffering believers, we know, like them, that we can find comfort in all that God has done for us and has for us in the future. And for this reason, we can be comforted. We can find hope. And we can, though we may not necessarily feel like it right away, we can join Peter in giving praise to God, even in the midst of suffering. And that leads us to the third reason why we can give thanks in the times of the storm. The third reason that we can give thanks in the time of the storm, and that is the persistence of thanksgiving. The persistence of thanksgiving. Verse 6. And this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Naturally, the first question that we should be asking is, well, what does in this refer to? Well, grammatically, the nearest reference would be the last time. So what is it about the last time that causes to us to rejoice? Well, it's the fullness of our salvation, the future realization of our salvation. Revealed in the last time, that is what causes us to rejoice. But Peter doesn't just say, in this you rejoice. No, he says, in this you greatly rejoice. You see, our hope in our, in our future salvation is a cause for great rejoicing. Another way that you can translate this is, in this you become exceedingly joyful. We're talking about a joy that overflows. A joy that is supremely and abundantly happy. Now, when you see the Greek word for exceedingly joyful in the New Testament, it always refers to a spiritual rather than temporal joy. And it usually is in reference to relationship with God. What this means for us is that the joy that we have, this exceeding joy that we ought to have, is not tied in our circumstances. It's not tied in our circumstances, but it is tied to God himself. It is tied to Christ himself. And for this reason, thanksgiving and praise can persist even when we experience difficulty because future hope, it fuels our worship always. And it gives people every reason to continue to praise God. Uh, this reminds me of that song that we sing every now and then called All, All I Have is Christ. And sometimes in our, in our trials and in our suffering, we look at our lives and the emptiness that we have, and it's easy to be tempted to just say, ah, All I have is Christ. Everything else is gone. And all I have is Christ. But that's not the attitude that we should take when it comes to that. Because when we say all that we have is Christ, oh, how sweet and joyful that is. Right? To have nothing but Christ, that's okay. That's fine. That's a great thing to have. 
It shouldn't be, oh, all I have is Christ. Instead, it should be, all I have is Christ, and that is enough because it has always been enough, and it will forever be enough. To say, all I have is Christ, it is enough for us. It is enough. Now, lest you accuse Peter of being insensitive, notice what he says next. Even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Hear me now. Peter is not, I repeat, not telling the Christians he is writing to, nor us, stop being sad. Don't you know the salvation and the hope that God has for you? Put on a smiley face and rejoice. He is not saying that. Peter absolutely recognizes that hurt happens. He is not trying to minimize anyone's suffering. He's not trying to ignore suffering. He is not denying that suffering occurs. What he is pointing to, though, is the fact that we will be able to rejoice greatly, knowing that any suffering we may experience now in this life is temporary. Though it may hurt now, even if we carry the ramifications with us until we graduate to glory, our suffering, our pain will not last for eternity it's a similar thought that Paul has in 2 Corinthians 4.17 when he describes suffering as momentary, light, affliction. In the long view, in light of eternity, our suffering will be overshadowed. It will be overwhelmed, overmatched by the amazing grace and kindness of our God in the future. Now, this again does not mean that those who suffer do not suffer real pain or that their suffering is insignificant and does not matter. It is real. It is significant. And it does matter. But the point of Paul and Peter is that we don't have, we don't lose all hope because of our suffering. We don't lose all hope because of our suffering. As significant as it may be at that time, because we know with supreme confidence, with absolute confidence, that God is at work. God is at work. If necessary, that reminds us that God is the one who is sovereignly in control of trials. He is the one who allows them to enter into our lives. Or he has many ways that he can teach you things about himself. He has many ways that he can teach you about his word and, and his character. But he only uses trials, says, if necessary. And so that means that when God allows trials into our lives, he does so with a purpose. There are times when trials enter into our lives and it seems senseless. It seems meaningless. When you lose a loved one suddenly and unexpectedly. When you lose a child. When violence enters into your life or the life of someone you know. All these things, we, we look at them, and it's so tempting to cry out, God, why are you doing this? It's senseless. It's meaningless. Why will you let me go through this? For people who aren't Christians... It's incredibly hard to answer the question of why God allows for these things to happen. We don't know exactly why he allows for a specific incident to happen. We don't know why God is doing certain things. What we do know, though, is that for those who don't believe in God, who don't have saving faith in him, what he wants to do, even in that trial, is to use that trial to help them realize their need for him, that there is not enough strength, not enough willpower, not enough wisdom on your own to save you or to deal with your problems, but you need him. You need him, and he does love you. That's what we know. The, the specific answer to that question, it's really hard to answer. And for Christians, it's slightly easier. It's slightly easier, but it's not really all that easy either. Right? We, can, we can 
point to the easy answer of, well, we know that God is working all things together for our good, right? Romans 8, 28. We know that he is working all things according to our good and that he loves us. But it's still hard, right? Because in the moment when we're suffering, when we're going through trial, you're saying, yeah, he's working all things together for good, but it hurts and it hurts now. You can point to the fact that suffering is momentary, that it is light. You can do that in a counseling sense. You can say, oh, it's okay. Suffering is momentary. It's light affliction. It's fine, right? But that doesn't answer our question. That doesn't satisfy. And there is no fully satisfactory answer as to why God allows trials into our lives. And sometimes there never will be satisfactory answers, and that's okay. That's okay. Because what we see from Peter here is that even though it may seem like our suffering is meaningless, God is doing something in that suffering. Our suffering is not meaningless, but it is absolutely meaningful. In 2 Corinthians 4.17, Paul, he tells us that momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comprehension comparison. Paul is pointing us to the fact that God is working in our lives, working in our suffering, working to accomplish something far greater than we can ever imagine. It just doesn't seem like that right now, but if we love him, if we trust him, we know that he is at work, that he has not abandoned us, that his hands have not left the wheel, but he still cares for you and he's still working for you. You're good. Going back to 1 Peter 1, notice that Peter, he's not elevating a particular trial over another. He describes the actual distress caused to the saints as various trials. The word for various here can be described as many colored. There are a lot of different types of trials that believers can endure, can experience. And God allows for each of us to experience trials based on how much we can handle. And we know that from 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Right? But each person, each person has a different tolerance for what they can handle, which is why for some, trials look like people ridiculing you for reading your Bible at work during your 15-minute break. Or it could be something as life-altering, life-shaking as losing a loved one. Regardless of what the trial is, each is significant in God's eyes. And Peter is not saying that one is more legitimate than the other. All suffering is significant to God. You know, I've heard someone say recently that the teaching that God gives you, what you can, only what you can handle is a lie. Because what they received was not something that they could handle. Without being dismissive, I would humbly suggest that that is the wrong interpretation. That is the wrong attitude. It may not feel like you can handle suffering or trial when it comes to you because it hurts, and it hurts very badly. But the fact that God gave it to you he allowed for you to experience it, means that though it hurts, he gave you this particular trial because he himself will strengthen you to learn to handle it. Right? You on your own, yeah, you can't deal with it. Right? But God himself will be the one who strengthens you, who will be the one who firms up your steps so that you can endure You are not sufficient, but he is. And so, can you handle the trial that he gives you? Yeah, you can. Absolutely. Because he is the one who emboldens you and strengthens you to do so. This past week, I ran into... A trial myself, and it wasn't fun. It wasn't fun. It hurt, and it still hurts. And well, I mean, it is a little more personal, so I'm not going to share with you too much detail. But 
in experiencing the hurt, there are two responses. I can be angry. I can be bitter. I can blame God for it. Or I can trust God and give thanks and try and figure out what God's trying to teach me. Some of you, you've heard me say this before, uh, but this is part of the way that God has dealt with me and instructed me in terms of how to fight to think right in the midst of trial and adversity. There are three questions that we have to ask ourselves when we suffer, when we experience bad news. Three questions. Could God have done something about the situation? Absolutely, he could have. Absolutely, he could have. Did God do something about the situation? No, he didn't. But here's the most important question that we must answer. How does God want me to respond now? How does God want me to respond now? I cannot tell you the exact reason why God allowed for this particular trial to enter my life, and I cannot tell you honestly that I'm fine right now, because I'm not. What I can tell you is that God is good. He is very good, and he is indeed sovereign. He is refining me to make me more and more like his son, and because of that, even though I am not fine, I am honestly doing it all right, and I can thank God for every single moment of that trial. If I could go back and do it again, would I? Absolutely. Every single moment of it. Why? Because without it, I don't appreciate God as much. Without it, I don't see how precious he is. Every single moment, I would take back, and I would do it again. Every single one. And I'm not bringing this up to you so that you can feel pity for me. I'm not bringing this up to you to show you that I have it all figured out, because obviously I don't. But I bring it up to you so that you can see that God, he's doing something. He's doing something. He's choosing to instruct us through suffering at times, through trial at times. And so we don't need to run away from trial. We don't need to shy away from trial. We, we Rather, we embrace it. We embrace it because it's a part of how God has chosen to instruct us at that time. And so because of that, we can continue to persist in our thankfulness. Because of that, we can continue to persist in our worship and our thankfulness because God is good. And is he sovereign? Absolutely, yes. Absolutely, absolutely, yes. How can I say that? How can I say that is so good? Because of verse 7, it says, So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The reason why God allows suffering into our lives is so that through the testing, the proof of our faith will be evident. Now, it may seem here like God is trying to find out something about you, that he allows for you to go through testing because he needs to figure out whether you're genuinely saved or not. That's not true, right? God knows. He knows your heart. He knows whether you're actually saved or not. So when he says, or when Peter says, so the proof of your faith may be evident, He's pointing us to something else. God instructs us through trial. He allows for us to go through trial, to go through the flame, to be tested for our own benefit. So you can learn to trust in him. So you can see how you don't need more of your own wisdom. You don't need more of your own strength. You don't need more of your own righteousness in order to solve your problems. You don't need any of that. You need him, and you need him alone. He also allows you to be tested so that as your faith grows, as it proves genuine, he might lavish his rewards upon you, that he might commend you, that he might say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And that's the idea 
that we see here as it says that the proof of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor. God allows for your faith to be tested, much like the worth of gold is tested through fire. But the only difference here is the fact that unlike gold, your faith is imperishable and it is worth more than gold. It will stand the tests of the flames. It will prove its worth and God will be honored. Verses 8 to 9. This is a little personal aside from Peter. And I think it's appropriate that we consider who it's coming from. Peter writes, And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Think about Peter's life. Think about what he has done. Out of all the, out of all the disciples, excluding Ju Judas, who failed Jesus the worst? Peter. Peter failed Jesus the worst. He boasted that he would not abandon Christ. He said, though others may leave you, I will not leave your side. When Jesus told him that he would deny him three times, he said, no, I will not. But what did he do? He denied Jesus three times. Peter was the one who failed Christ the most. Yet he walked with Jesus. He loved Jesus. He was so close to Jesus that he was included in Jesus' inner circle. That was his relationship with Jesus. Yet he failed. And you can almost see Peter writing this with almost an attitude of, hey, look, you're already doing better than me. You're already doing better than I did. Because he says, or he points out the reality that we have not had the privilege of seeing Jesus. Yet, because we've been convicted by the truth of the gospel, we love Christ. We still, at this very moment, do not see him, yet we believe. And as a result, we have every reason to rejoice. And he says, we can rejoice with joy inexpressible. Basically saying that we have a joy that is beyond words and full of glory. It carries this idea of we can Give thanks and give glory to God with the highest praise. When we rejoice with joy inexpressible and full glory, Peter says that we are receiving for ourselves presently the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. This means that at this present moment, when we respond in faith, when we respond with joy inexpressible and thanksgiving to God, we are presently obtaining for ourselves the salvation, the deliverance of our lives from the penalty of sin and the power of sin. We are grabbing hold of what God offers to us. That's how we obtain it. Not that we earn it, but that we're grabbing hold of what he's, what he's offering to us. And because of that, because of this confidence that God is there, that he gives us this hope, that he gives us every single reason to continue to trust in him, even in the midst of suffering, we can rejoice and we can thank God all the more. This week, we celebrate Thanksgiving. And when you really slow down and you think about it, there is a lot that we can give thanks, God, thanks to God for. There's a lot, that, a lot of things that God rightly deserves in our lives. And I know for some of you, you may not necessarily feel in the mood to give thanks to God because of what you've endured this year. And while some of you might be fine right now, you know, as the holidays come, those painful memories come up again too. And you're going to dwell on what was. But as we've learned from Peter this morning, God, he cares about every single one of those trials. He cares for you. He has given you salvation. And even when we cannot see what God is doing, even when we cannot trace what his hand is doing, we know that God is at work and that he has not ceased to love us. I know that it's going to be hard. I know that it won't be easy. But even in suffering, we must fight to think 
in a way that honors God and to remember all that he's done and is currently doing for us to continue to fight for thankfulness, to continue to live in thankfulness. So because of salvation and the sureness of God's sovereignty, you and I have every reason to trust God and thank him, even in the midst of the storm. Let's pray. Our God, you are so good to us. You are so good to us, even though at times our faith falters and we are faithless. Yet even though we may be faithless, you are always faithful. Because of that, we know that we can have every single confidence in you that our salvation is sure. And that salvation alone ought to cause us to always give thanks. But in the midst of trial, when we are being tested, Lord, we know it's so easy for us not to be thankful. We pray that you would help us to see with your eyes what you might be doing. Even if we don't get the full understanding of it, we pray that you would help us to see with eyes of faith how we are to trust you, how you are guiding us and calling us to trust you and to love you all the more, to rely on you. We pray, Father, that you would strengthen and encourage our hearts with these truths. Help us, Lord, to love you all the more. It's in your sons that we pray. Amen. Well, thank you so much for your attention. Have a happy Thanksgiving, and we'll see you next week.